So we're here on the first full day of the retreat. And uh, for me, from my perspective, it's an impressive feat that uh, people come on retreat, they're engaged in this kind of retreat practice. It's impressive to go through the first day with you and be sitting here, these last sittings, and feeling the stillness in the room and feeling your engagement in it all. It's very nice, very beautiful. And it's not something that a lot of people do. It's not a lot of, something a lot of people even understand why you would do it. Um, and uh, maybe some of you are wondering why am I doing it. <laughs> but uh, I've seen, uh, you know, I've gone through this process of retreats many times myself. And as a teacher, I've witnessed many people go through it. And um, I'm quite familiar with both the challenges of it, but also the tremendous benefits and meaning and sense of purpose that this kind of practice can give, provide. And uh, with the hope of supporting you in the practice you do here, uh, for today's talk, I thought of uh, uh, talking about two different two different things. The first is to talk a little bit more about what the Dharma is. And, um, and then the second is to talk about mindfulness, different aspects of mindfulness. And, you know, the idea being that uh, the two are mutually supportive, that it's the mindfulness that helps us to see the Dharma. It's the Dharma that allows mindfulness to flourish, to go hand in hand. So I think when I first encountered Buddhism many years ago, <clears throat> I had some kind of uh, mystical ideas of what the Dharma is. Um, something mysterious. You know, partly I came through the Zen door, and uh, Zen had all these paradoxes and mysteries and things. And so the Dharma, and also we would chant in the Zen center, an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma, unsurpassed even in a hundred, uh, uh, unsurpassed, penetrating, perfect Dharma, rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Kalpa is a long time, so 100,000 million of them is really a long time. None surpassed, penetrating, perfect dharma, rarely met with, even in 100,000 million kalpas. Um, I, I now have to see and listen to... So, how does it go? Having it to see and listen to, I now fully... Not a vow. No. That's a different chant. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, the first part about how profound and wonderful. So I thought it was you know something infinitely mysterious and mystical and you know profound in some kind of inaccessible unacce- way. And perhaps that kind of sense of the Dharma served me, helped me, inspired me, and got me involved in my practice. For a long time, so I'm not going to say this was wrong to have that idea. But I've come to see that, at least in uh, the Theravada tradition and the teachings of the Buddha, that the Dharma is um, something very immediate and something that uh, is available to each of us in a very direct way. That it's not meant to be something mysterious and something that uh, takes uh, convoluted philosophy or logic or word games to kind of point to and understand. It's something very practical and 
almost obvious and ordinary. It's so ordinary, maybe that's what makes it difficult to see. Or it's so ordinary, it's difficult to see how the application of it can be uh, quite profound and meaningful in our lives. I also learned that uh, the Dharma is not outside of me or not outside of you. Uh, I think when I was a new student of Buddhism, I thought the, dhar- the great Dharma out there. And, um, and you know, somehow I had to kind of... The Dharma was like this great parental authority figure for me. Mm-hmm. And it was all good and um, all-knowing, all-wise. And now I see that there is no Dharma out there. Uh, there's a Dharma is found in my heart, in your heart. It's found here in your life. And the chant that they do in Theravada Buddhism about the Dharma is, um, it goes, I, I'm not going to chant it, but it goes something like that, goes like this. Um, that the, uh, the, uh, the Dharma is <clears throat> visible here and now. It's immediately effective. It invites inspection. It's onward leading. And it is, no, it, is, it is to be known by the wise. It's one translation of chant that's given. And what stands out for me in particular is the first description of the Dharma as being um, visible here and now. So how is it visible here and now? And so the Buddha yeah. described this. In, um, when people asked him, how is the Dharma visible here and now? And rather than giving some mystical or mysterious pointing to something, uh, he, po- he pointed to the very simple and ordinary, I think, hopefully ordinary enough, experience that you've all had, we've all had in some way or other, of being caught in the mind, being caught by some attachment, and then letting it go. In that movement of seeing the attachment and then letting go, that's where the dharma is found, and that's where it's immediately, in the seen, seen, visible here and now. When you do that movement, when you, that's where it's found. Uh, so it's not found in philosophy books. It's not found in teachings per se, but rather it's found in some movement that goes on in your own mind and heart. That's where it's found, and. The opening of this this chant about the Dharma being visible here and now talks about uh, mentions that the Dharma is something that's meant to guide us, to be guided by this. So not guided by some tenets of belief of a religious system so much, but rather guided by our own hearts, by our own minds, guided by our ability to see into ourselves and know the difference between uh, being attached with something, caught by something, preoccupied, or not. And, and taking that movement towards being not. Releasing, relaxing, letting go. Um, the, the Buddha was a little bit more specific than I was about seeing it. He talked about how, he talked about greed and the release of greed. Then you see the Dharma here and now. If uh, hate and the release of hate delusion and the release of delusion. That's where the Dharma is seen. And I think it's one of the really beautiful and profound aspects of life that there are people who are 
dedicated to doing this work of liberating themselves, freeing themselves, of not living in a world caught by their ideas and their concepts and their attachments. It's not an easy thing to become uncaught. It's not an easy thing to be liberated. But it's a beautiful process to do it. And it's um, it's something that I think our world has tremendous need for, for people who do this level of deep inner work. Because it's one thing to... Um, or say it in, in very personal terms, when I was... Um, first year or so that I was in the Zen monastery, I had also been accepted to go to graduate school at UC Berkeley to study soil science. And my uh, goal was to be involved in uh, soil conservation, to uh, uh, help with soil erosion issues. And I saw soil soil erosion as one of the big uh, crises of of this world. often underappreciated by people because it doesn't make big news, but uh, tremendous uh, devastation goes on in countries around the world where the soil is being eroded. So that was kind of what I was interested in. So <clears throat> first year in the monastery, I was trying to decide which of these two, <clears throat> what route do I take my, what direction I take my life? Do I go to graduate school and do this important work of soil erosion control? Or do I stay in the Zen monastery and follow the course of practice. And it wasn't obvious, and I spent a lot of time exploring the topics, exploring myself, my looking at my intentions for doing both, trying to understand this the best I could. And um, <clears throat> and one of, the, one of the things that made a big difference as of when I finally made my decision was that... Um, that even if I was very su- I was successful in alleviating soil erosion, helping to feed people in the world, I felt that there would be some deeper gnawing dissatisfaction in me because um, people would still suffer in some deeper psychological, existential way. The fact that people have could have uh, food, which people need to have, is important. Um, people have some prosperity. It doesn't uh, protect them from the ordinary, or not ordinary, but the deeper... Uh, clingings, attachments that people have. And, um, and I felt that uh, it was really important to get down to the root of what goes on in the heart and the mind and purify it, clarify it, resolve it, deal with it, or even just to look at it, to touch it and, and uh, get close to it. And so that was one of the things that then prompted me to decide to uh, throw myself into the world of Buddhist practice because it's the only way that I knew uh, that somehow addressed these, the deeper roots in the heart, deeper roots in the mind. So the Dharma being something that's visible here and now, and uh, in your own heart and in your own mind, and that can guide us if we pay attention to that and notice it. It's immediately effective in that if you understand the Dharma, understand the way in which we cling tight and we, and we can let go, that that's immediately effective. There's a release right there. And I love this idea of it being immediately effective because um, there are times where I've uh, cast my lot, my Buddhist lot, in the future. 
you know, I'll huff and my puff, and eventually some great, wonderful thing will happen to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, it doesn't matter I get a headache on the way as I strain. But this idea of immediately effective. So it's kind of a little bit of a challenge. Like, well, how is it? How can we be present? How can we, what can we bring into the present moment that's immediately effective in helping us become free, helping us be more at ease? Is there, is there something that's available to do that? And, uh, and I think that's a wonderful challenge to see, see that. And that challenge and wondering, uh, even in the midst of struggle and difficulty, is there some place of ease? Is there something immediately effective even with that? Not that it has to go away, but there's a, some way of relating to that or being with it where we are not, where it's effective. We feel, oh yes, this is meaningful. Um, and then this idea of it's an inv- inviting inspection. The Dharma invites inspection. Or I think literally the Pali means to come and see. Uh, come and look for yourself. And that's kind of, a little bit I see the challenge of Buddhism is um, it doesn't say come and read more books and get a PhD in Buddhist studies. It says come and look. Come and look more deeply yourself. Take a good look at this life. And one of the opportunities of retreats is to help with a deeper look, deeper looking. Come and look. There's a different kind of looking that happens when we go into silent retreat. When we have the opportunity to not be distracted or be involved in a lot of the ordinary activities of life and work and family and social life, um, those things can be wonderful, but they also can be distractions from allowing ourselves to settle deep enough to start looking below the surface layers or to look sometimes in the back rooms of our minds that are often not uh, have been ignored and uh, not seen so well. So here there's a chance to come and see, see yourself. Some people come to retreat like this to find themselves, to discover who they are, discover aspects of themselves, things that they can't usually see in the busyness of ordinary life. Some people come on retreat like this to discover um, uh, how to see beyond the usual concerns and preoccupations that they usually have, maybe see deeper into the heart, find the Dharma, find freedom there. And then this idea that the Dharma is onward leading. So not only is it immediately effective, but that it leads someplace. And just like water will flow down river, water will flow down a hill, downhill. So when we have the Dharma as our guide, our life flows follows gravity. Our life is released and, and flows downhill or follows in the, you know, it goes onward leading, it flows, it develops. And I've been uh, quite amazed by how sitting still and being mindful, opening my life in a deeper way to be aware, allows for something to move inside of me, to open up, to release. So much so that, as, as Andrea said yesterday, um, we, we get practice. It isn't, that, it isn't only that we practice mindfulness or we practice meditation, but we are being practiced. We're being meditated. And if we, take, if we, take complete, if we, if we think we're completely responsible 
for everything that happens to us on retreat and meditation and practice, uh, you probably tie yourself in knots. But you have your responsibility, but you also have um, this way of relaxing and allowing something to move through you, allow something to unfold, allow something to unwind, allow something to open up. And this allowing um, you know, is onward leading, so something can move through you is, I think, a very important part of the Dharma. And to learn to trust that. And again, it's not trusting the Dharma as something external, a belief system, but rather trusting that your heart is, has a capacity to, to move onward to a healthier, skillful, more liberated or freer or better, compassionate place. The heart can open in a way. And then, uh, and then the last little statement by the Dharma, I don't know what was meant exactly, but I take it as a little encouragement, uh, maybe a little, little bit of a, you know, to be known by the wise. So, oh, so that's what it takes to be wise. <laughs> or I guess maybe I'm a little bit wise, since this is, you know, the path I'm on. So, um, So to sit here, you, so you have here when you come to practice, as your companion, you have the Dharma. It's not far away, it's in your heart, it's in your mind, it's something that you can find yourself. Hopefully you'll find yourself, hopefully with time, you'll get an understanding of how to tune in and or discover the truth, the Dharma, the path in yourself in such a way that you have confidence in it. It becomes a source of stability or source of meaning, source of, of strength and power for your life as you go through your life. So then we come to mindfulness. And mindfulness is the uh, one of the preeminent practices in our tradition for opening to the Dharma, for discovering the Dharma, for allowing the Dharma to work through us. And uh, mindfulness has many different aspects to it. I think of it as a multi-dimensional practice that over time, the different dimensions, different aspects of it uh, get revealed or we notice or we learn. And um, I still feel like I'm, I feel like I'm still learning what mindfulness is. Occasionally I'll, t- I'll tell people that I, I don't really know what it is uh, because it still keeps opening up to something, in, something new and to different ways, different understandings of how it works. Um, and um, so one of the most basic aspects of mindfulness is to attend to your experience the, uh, to stand uh, some of the scholars when they translate satipatthana uh, translated as uh, mindfulness that stands near the mindfulness that attends uh, attention that attends to something so, uh, attention and attend, maybe they're closely related, but I like the word attend. Attend has a kind of, for me, a nurturing feeling, uh, a friendly feeling, a friendly attitude, a, um, a generous feeling. We're going to attend to someone who's sick. We attend to ourselves. We attend to our breath. As opposed to, um, I'm going to be up in the control tower of my brain and establish a laser-like focus and unwavering kind of stay there kind of zero in on that breath and just not waver one bit 
you know, that's, that's one approach. Might work for you. But uh, for me, the idea of attending my breath, then is, you know, it, it feels a little more caring. It's like caring for the breath almost, being present. But the aspect of mindfulness is, uh, is being present for your experience, attending to it, being present for it, being present for what happens as it's happening. And some of you, I'm sure, know that at times it's quite difficult to attend to the present moment because the mind wanders off. Or you can do it for a few moments and then it wanders off again. First day of the retreat, there's a lot of uh, thinking that often goes on and mind wanders off. And and one of, the, one of the things that I've experienced in the first days of the retreat, when I've seen how difficult it is for my mind to get still and be present, is I've had a lot of um, frustration and anger and discouragement with myself because of it. And I've learned over time to trust the onward leading nature of the Dharma, of the practice. I don't have to worry so much about how well I'm doing. I don't have to measure myself. I can trust the process. So I come back. I just come back. My mind wanders off and I come back to the present. I come back to noticing what's happening here. And then I have to do it again. And it's quite powerful to be in a silent retreat like this. As Andrea said yesterday, just being here, uh, you'll be changed by the experience. And so I learned over time to let go of the discouragement and the judging and the, and the, about, you know, when I, the ideas I had that I, my practice was going poorly because it didn't matter what I thought about it. <laughs> um, it was happening. You know, it, it would, you know, if I just showed up and did the best I could, uh, it begins moving. Something happens over time. There's a releasing. And if I'm not happy with how it's going and reactive, then it's like stirring up the mud jar that Andrea talked about. So to, uh, to trust the onward leading process. So to keep showing up, keep showing up, to be mindful and present for what's here. And then part of that then is to discover what's here. <coughs> to discover what is here. What is here for us? What is our own experience? How do we experience things? What do we experience? What do we notice when we're in the present moment? Do we tend to notice mostly all the other people? And, um, and that's, you know, we're to, we discover we're really tuned into people. People are like the, the, the vehicle through which we experience life. And so I'm constantly thinking about people, constantly <coughs> concerned about the people around here and what are they thinking about me or what are the teachers thinking or, or how can I get away from these people? Because, you know, and so you just go, that's what happens. If I left left alone and still, this is what I discover about myself. I'm, I'm in some one way or other a people person. Or maybe you discover that mostly what you do when you sit down to sit here is you think about sensual or sexual fantasies. At least for today, that's wow. That, that's who I am. That's what goes on. And to have kind of, or maybe what you think about is mostly food. Or maybe you mostly not off, not because you're sleepy, because you're not very inspired. You're uninspired by yourself, by life, by anything. And so you just kind of, there's no effort there. There's no interest really in anything. So part of mindfulness is simply discover who are you? What's going on here for you when you're present? Without making it a problem, without being in conflict with it, 
hopefully to attend to it with respect. Oh, this is how it is now. This is the saying that the Dharma is immediately effective, that it's onward leading, it's visible here and now. I kind of interpret this to mean that it's all okay. <coughs> it's, the, the, the issue is not with what's happening, but rather how we relate to it. So it's, you don't have to be upset by any of this, but the task is to see it, to be mindful for it. Oh, this is how it is. This is how it is. My mind is out of control. My mind is thinking a lot. So if you have a mind that's thinking a lot, what is better? To have a mind that's thinking a lot and you just see it in a matter-of-fact way, or have a mind that's out of control, thinking a lot, and you don't even know it, or to have a mind which is out of control, thinking a lot, and hating it for doing it. Which of those three options is most pleasant? I think for me, the most pleasant is the first. Just have a mind that's out of control and just very matter-of-factly know it. Oh, this is how it is. And then get curious about it. Be interested. To be curious and interested in your mind and yourself is to have respect for yourself. A certain kind of dignity and value of who you are, rather than dismissing it and being upset because you're out of control with your thinking. Turn and look to it. Be with it. What is this? What is this? And this idea of moving towards be present, mindful, this is how I, I am. This is what's going on for me now. Is the beginning of a settling process, the beginning of an opening process, the beginning of a discovery process that leads us to the Dharma or is perhaps the Dharma itself. And then as we practice mindfulness, as we practice attending to our experience, as we begin looking more carefully, noticing what's happening in the present moment, hopefully you'll get more interested in the present as the time goes along. It's a lot easier to be in the present moment if you're curious and interested than if you treat it as a duty. It's your duty to be in the present moment, by golly, and you better, you know, better show up come back there's the jerking your mind around approach to mindfulness where the mind wanders off and you notice it and you jerk it back come back to the breath come back and the jerking your mind around doesn't really help you discover much dharma um, there's hopefully you can, you can be much more relaxed I, I like the idea of floating my mind back to my breath if I'm staying on the breath I float it back there's no hurry. I mean, I mean, is there hurry? There's no stopwatch. It says you can get back as quickly as you can. So there's a floating it back. Or an interesting thing, I've mostly done this on longer retreats. I don't know how well it works in the first day or so. But um, uh, when the mind wanders off, and my mind has wandered off in thought, I've noticed it, and then I've got along with it for a while, for a few seconds. Not, I haven't stopped it. I go along with it. It's kind of the image I had is that of, um, I don't know, what the, maybe the expression in English is siding up next to something? I don't know what it's called. Mm -hmm. What? Sideline up. Sideline up? Saddling. Saddling up, saddling up next to it. So saddling up next to it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so my mind thinking away, whatever it's, you know. And then I saddle up next to it and kind of go along with it for a while. And then we're kind of like going along parallel. Then I kind of gently, a big arc, 
lead the horse around back <laughs> to the present moment. And um, so I don't know if that made sense to you in your mind, what you do, but it worked for me. And, uh, but it, I, I offer it to you as an example of a different approach than the pouncing on the breath or the jerking or being upset with what's going on or this is the terrible that my mind is thinking. Can you believe it? I'm thinking. <laughs> and um, certainly no one else here in this room is thinking. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> trust, trust the onward leading. Trust the process. Trust how it opens up. Just keep showing up and noticing, oh, this is how it is. If every two seconds you notice, I'm thinking, that's what's happening now. I'm thinking. You'd be a transformed person by the end of the week. Just that. Just, oh, that's what's happening now. That's what's happening now. And part of the reason you'd be transformed is that every time you see, <clears throat> I'm thinking, you're not so caught by it. You're not so tied up in it. And to do that regularly and repeatedly begins a, f- a dramatic and beautiful freeing process from the way the mind gets stuck in its concerns and attachments. So it works a lot easier to be mindful if you're interested, to be still and quiet and interested in what reveals itself, what shows itself when you sit here. Another aspect of mindfulness practice, which is very interesting, is um, to realize that there's always two things going on. There is what's happening, and then there's your relationship to what's happening. And that a lot of what the practice is about, where the Dharma is found, is in your relationship to what's happening, not necessarily in what's happening. So if, if I mean, you, this is not a hard and fast category, what's happening, and they can be, so, they can be you know, absolutely separated. But I think for teaching purposes or practice purposes, it's sometimes useful to separate out these two ideas. So to sit with... Um, the mind being distracted, being caught up in its thoughts, and then the relation. What's the relationship to that? There could be frustration or anger. The relationship is different. It's also possible to be just curious. I'm here, wow, or just amazed. It's amazing how much energy I have for thinking. Uh, probably solve the California energy problems if they <laughs> hooked hooked me up. <laughs> So you kind of be more amazed. That's a different relationship than the relationship of being a frustration with how it is. So how is it? How are you relating? So part of mindfulness practice is to be curious or interested in how am I relating to what's happening now? How am I relating to my breath? That you're breathing and the breathing maybe is uncomfortable. And so how do you relate to the fact that it's an uncomfortable breath? Um, how your breathing feels will change over, over time. Sometimes it might feel satisfying, sometimes it might not feel satisfying at all. I have a certain kind of breath that I experience sometimes that I call cardboard breath. And um, I would say it's not satisfying. It's just kind of like dead or dull or cardboard, like, you know, no flavor or nothing. And, um, and I've learned that that's just how it is sometimes. And it's not going to be this way forever. It's just how it is right now. And rather than being upset by it, rather than thinking that I'm doing something wrong, rather than thinking that I have to fix it, I've learned that the most useful thing to do is just attend to it, to be present, to become the world expert on cardboard breath, (laughs) just to get to be present for it, be curious about it, be with it. 
So this is pointing to the idea of the relation. How do you relate to something that's difficult? How do you relate to something which is good and nice? Do you get excited? Do you get enthused? Do you get idealistic? I've been on retreat and <clears throat> and uh, had difficult days. Often the first days are difficult. And then I've had days which were really good, really, really calm and settled. And I would spend hours without really noticing it because I wasn't mindful. <laughs> I knew I was calm and relaxed and felt good. And I'd spend my time fantasizing how I was going to tell all my friends to go on retreat. <laughs> you should really try this. This is really great. Not noticing that it's all my inner conversations about telling my friends, I was not really on retreat anymore. You know, I was in conversation with them. So I was caught by that. So, I, so here the relationship was one of enthusiasm or idealism for something that felt good, but I was hooked into it as opposed to being matter-of-fact about it. An attitude for retreat that I often advise people to have <coughs> is when you are on retreat like this <coughs> is to have a kind of a policy or an approach not, not, not an absolute belief, but just more like a useful kind of practice approach. And practice as if whatever happens on the retreat was supposed to happen. That'll save you a lot of problems. <laughs> because a very common movement is, uh-oh, this shouldn't be happening. If only my back didn't hurt, then I can practice. This shouldn't be happening. Or if only it wasn't so cold. This cold is making it hard for me to practice. This shouldn't be happening. I should have gone to Hawaii. There's all these all these ideas. But if you assume that whatever is happening is supposed to happen, then the task is to practice with it. As opposed to, you know, get lost in the mind that's reacting to it, being upset by it. So, uh, you know, so it could be that you'll, you'll, something can happen here that we don't really want to have happen. Perhaps right now one of the showers doesn't work. And it could be that tomorrow we'll wake up and none of the showers work. We had actually, many years ago, were you there at that retreat? No, you weren't there. It was that was at Jokoji. Jokoji? Were you there at that retreat? We, we had a retreat where we had a two-week no retreat. Water. Ten days we had no water. No running water. No running water. And uh, it was a great retreat. <laughs> because there weren't the distractions. And also rain the whole time. There was no running water. And so everybody kind of kind of got really close. I mean, they, I mean, they got stay, stayed close to themselves. There was no... And you could feel people got deeper and deeper and deeper because there was no, nowhere to go out. <laughs> So we're not going to arrange for that here. <laughs> but if the if there's tomorrow, there's no showers. If you follow my instructions, my suggestion, um, you would assume say, "Oh, this is what's supposed to happen on the second day." <laughs> and now the task is to practice with this. Practice it. With it means find the dharma in it. Find how not to be in conflict with it. How not to have. Uh, uh, attachments, desires, fears, 
aversions get the upper hand. Discover how to be at ease with this, how to be mindful and present for this, how to work with it. And I think this attitude of approaching everything on retreat as if it's supposed to happen um, saves a lot of grief. But more important than that, I think it, it helps it helps provide you with a mirror that helps you look more honestly at yourself. Because without that mirror, without that idea, oh, it's supposed to happen, it's more difficult to see all the thoughts that shouldn't be happening. But if you, you still have thoughts that shouldn't be happening, but now you have a, now you have something to contrast it with and see it in more in highlight, and then you could work with it and be mindful of it. So this is all pointing to the aspect of mindfulness that part of what we do here is to explore our relationship to what's happening, and that can be from our breath to the movements of our mind to our feelings and emotions to what's happening outside the showers. Um, could be anything. And then the other, another aspect of mindfulness that I'd like to discuss is um, to the degree to which mindfulness is an activity of the mind, something we're doing, we're bringing, we're attending to our breath, we're attending to our steps as we walk, we're attending to the sounds in the room, we're attending to what's happening. There's a kind of a doing there. Kind of. Sometimes more than other times. But I think often people, when they do something, they do it in character. They do it according to how they usually do things. They have a certain kind of general approach of how we do things generally. So if the, you know, if uh, your your tendency is to be aversive, then there can be a subtle aversion that's kind of built into the mindfulness. If you tend to be striver, a fix-it person, who wants these feels like you have to fix everything, then kind of shape, kind of blending in with the mindfulness is this attitude: so I have to fix something here. Or if you're if you're fearful anxious, then the very idea of when you're mindful of something, the anxiety sometimes can be blended together with the anxiety. So when we pay attention to something, we pay attention to a little bit through the filter of some fear. So we tend to be mindful in character. And a very important part of this whole mindfulness training is slowly over time discovering all the extra attitudes that we bring into bear uh, on them, how we're mindful, how we're paying attention. To realize that we don't have to strain. We don't have to sit up in the control tower and watching like a, like, you know, like an engineer. Or we don't have to um, be cautious. We don't have to be so cautious as if we're opening up Pandora's box. We can just be present. Or we don't have to have so much desire you know, or so much at stake. I've known people who've done mindfulness. Um, literally, they uh, like it was their lifesaver that kept them from drowning. And maybe it did. Maybe it was very important for them. But there was this deep, deep, you know, strong attitude. They're really holding on for dear life. Like, I have to be mindful. I have to be mindful now. And they tried to, you know, 
often uh, people I've seen do it the most this way are people who use uh, mental noting. And they're holding on to the mental noting as a, you know, because it kind of maybe because if they don't do it, something I don't know what will happen to them. But in the mindfulness, how we're mindful, sometimes it's interesting to notice, to turn around and look at the quality of the attention itself. What are we? What are we doing? Are we, is it? Is it mindfulness? Simple. Is it like looking out through an open window, or is it like looking not through an open window but through a colored glass, or is it like looking through painted glass, where you see through the filter of your beliefs, your attitudes, everything? Our attention is seldom innocent. Meaning our attention is seldom, say it in a different way, our attention often has agendas as part of it. And different people have different agendas. You go into a room of people, some people automatically go and look, see, well, who, who, is it safe here? Who are the people I feel safe with? So other people, they go into a room and they say, where can I hide? Where can, where can I go stand so no one notices me? Someone else goes into a room and says, where's the food? <laughs> you know, someone else goes into the, you know, you know we, have the, we have our dispositions, our tendencies. And so the attention is that our attention is used often in the service of our interests, our desires, our characters, our attitudes. And the same thing for mindfulness. Even as something as simple as bringing attention to our breathing might not be so innocent. We might have attitudes of striving or desire or pushing or hesitation or holding back or you know all kinds of things that are built into it. One of the attitudes that can be blended in with mindfulness is uh, all kinds of um, uh, ideas about oneself, how we represent ourselves, egoism, self-centered ideas selfishness, um, self-concepts can be there. You know, that I'm the one who's mindful, I'm the one who has to do this, I'm the one who has to prove myself, it's all up to me. And there's so much self involved in trying to be mindful. Mindfulness doesn't require any self, really. It's just mindfulness can be like an open window. They're just there and present for an experience. So I've offered you three areas of mindfulness. One area is that mindfulness is simply a noticing of what's happening in the present moment, attending to it, hopefully with curiosity or interest. And that whatever's happening in the present moment is valid for mindfulness. And even if the mind is wandering off a lot in thought, that itself is worthwhile just to notice. You don't have to be in conflict with it but to notice it clearly, I'm thinking. And then the second thing I, I said was the idea of there's the re, notice the relationship you have with what's happening in the present moment. And the third, which is a little bit like this, connected to the second, is when you're mindful, when you're paying attention, when you're being aware, is, is there any attitude embedded in the awareness itself. 
takes sometimes a little more subtlety to see that, but that can be very helpful because if you can sometimes you can notice that there are attitudes which are not helpful, maybe that are even causing some suffering, that you can maybe let go of, so that you can have the mindfulness be simple. I like to think of the, the goal of mindfulness practice. One of the goals is to have simple mindfulness. In fact, one of the teachers in our lineage, Manindraji, was famous for saying, uh, if it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. And that was helpful for me because I was doing all kinds of complicated mental gymnastics when I started. It's not simple. So those three. And then there's something else I want to say about mindfulness. So if you notice, see if you can notice the effect that mindfulness has on you. Notice what it's like to be present. Ideally, every moment of mindfulness is satisfying. Doesn't mean that everything, anything else is satisfying in your experience. But that some, there's something about the moment of mindfulness is settling. And so the, 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 the task, the experimentation is, how can you use your mind, your attention, your awareness, in such a way that you can be aware of something, and something inside of you settles, or something, something inside of you opens when you bring attention to it. Something inside of you calms down when you bring attention to it. So what, what, what's the quality, what's the kind of attention that, that you bring that it's settling to be attentive? So if you're judging or reactive or have all these attitudes built into your experience, it's hard to settle. But if it's very simple and ordinary, oh, just this is happening, there's sometimes a possibility to settle our experience in some way. Or the awareness opens up. Rather than the awareness getting tighter and contracted, a moment of mindfulness is almost like a release and an opening. So here's a maybe a little thought experiment for you. You can try. And you can maybe even maybe try with your eyes closed. And um, sitting here now, Notice something going on in your body and mind. Notice something happening for you, anything at all. Choose something that you notice. And then I'm going to then repeat a word. I'm going to tell you a word. As you pay attention to this thing that you're experiencing yourself, say this word towards it and see what the effect is. So feel your thing, beware of your thing, and then say no, or oh no. Now in contrast to that, notice what happens when you say yes, yes.
What happens when you say yes? So, you can open your eyes if you want. I'm not sure how that went for you. It can go different ways for different people, different associations with those two words. But for me, the word yes, when I say yes to something, I feel a little more expansive. It kind of opens up the field of awareness. Oh, yes. When I say no, it tends to narrow the field of awareness. This idea of opening the field of awareness um, with mindfulness has been helpful for me in my practice. Um, And so I find that actually, sometimes I've actually used that as a mindfulness tool or a mental note, uh, where I just say yes to everything. (laughs) Whatever is going on, rather than use a mental note that's more specific, what's going on, I just say yes, yes, yes to that. And um, the idea of opening. And the idea of opening, this metaphor, the idea of opening, goes along for me with the idea that the Dharma is onward leading. The Dharma lives inside of us. And it's not just up to our efforts here, but we can allow something to unfold, to open up, to move through us, uh, to unwind, to resolve itself. Something here. And that, how do we make space for that? How do we make space for the life to move through us? How do we make space for that which needs to come forth within us? So yes, or to allow for, have awareness be open, uh, to have awareness be make space. So one of the wonderful expressions in English is breathing room. To give something breathing room. I love it for mindfulness meditation. You're sitting following your breath, for example, that, um, or not your breath, but whatever. The idea that we're trying to give breathing room to our experience. Breathe with the breath, we breathe with our experience, be present. How do, we, how do we make more mental room? How do we make more room in the field of awareness for what's happening here? When, we, when we're claustrophobic and tight, caught up in our concerns and our reactions to things. There's no breathing room. But how do we step back? How do we open up the awareness? How do we recognize or attend to what's happening now so there's more feeling of being open to the experience? So there's space for what's happening. There's breathing room for what's going on. There's room for the need to hurt. There's so much room for the mind to be thinking that you have such a sense of all the space in the mind for thinking to occur that the mind, that the thinking gets really quiet. Like you would go into a huge, huge cathedral with a friend and out in the streets you might be talking loudly but in this huge cathedral, there's no one else in the cathedral so no one cares if you're talking but you would normally, I think, get really quiet in this beautiful big space. So I hope that some of these ideas that I offer you today will support you or offer you something to explore in the next day of practice. 
if anything I said today uh, didn't speak to you or somehow doesn't seem to fit for how it is for you, you're more than welcome to leave it behind. But maybe one or two of these things uh, will support you and point you um, to the Dharma that's in your heart. Let's end with a couple of minutes of sitting quietly, regathering. Whenever you remember, come back. Whenever you remember, wake up to what is here. And perhaps by saying yes, (coughs) your mind can get bigger and quieter and more free. (laughs) 